In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We tend to celebrate milestones in our lives and the lives of others. Birthdays come around once a year, and while it's right to celebrate those, that's not quite what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the significant events of someone's life, which is a point where nothing is ever going to be the same again. Milestones might be opening a new business, retiring, getting married, becoming a parent for the, the moment that your first child is born, or even a grandparent, two different roles in many ways. In our liturgical year, the church recognizes five major milestones in the life of Jesus. The nativity is not included in this list because these milestones are things that occur from the start of Jesus' ministry. And the first was when that ministry began, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. From that point on, what we believe to be three years of teaching and preaching and healing, the ministry we know of Jesus, from that point on, three other milestones all occurred at the end of Jesus' life, namely his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. But there's a fifth milestone, and it's the only one to occur in the throes of his ministry and not in his passion. And that is what we have come together to celebrate this evening, the transfiguration. But what is the transfiguration? It's a strange word that we don't use very often, perhaps only once or twice a year. It is a strange concept because at some level, we really don't understand what is happening. And the three gospel accounts we have of it are all somewhat cryptic. And it's a strange incident that happened to Jesus, which also begs the question of what significance does this changing of appearance have for me? And why is it relevant in our Christian life? I think with just a little bit of an investigation, we can begin to answer some of those questions. Jesus takes three of his disciples up to a mountaintop. And with that description, Luke is drawing our minds, almost like trying to foreshadow the appearance of Moses and Elijah, who also had their own mountaintop experience with God. But Jesus has an explicit reason to go to the mountain. He is going to pray. And it is important to realize that prayer was essential even for Jesus, and that he models a life of prayer and shows his disciples that model as well. And if we want to begin to be more like Jesus, we must start with prayer. Prayer reveals things to us. Prayer reveals things about us. And prayer also reveals spiritual and godly things as the, uh, spiritual and godly things in the ordinariness of this life. It is through prayer that we begin to recognize God's working in this world. We become more attuned to God's will. And we learn what our faith is truly saying. Prayer and faith 
or prayer and believing, go hand in hand. One of the more popular phrases, and, and pardon the Latin, but one of these phrases that we use is lex orande, lex credendi, or the law of prayer is the law of belief. Or to borrow the title of a book, Praying Shapes Believing. During this prayer, Jesus is changed, is transfigured, appears different than how the disciples have normally seen him. The different accounts in the Gospels use different language to describe this change. One says that his clothing became more brilliant than any fuller could bleach them. Luke describes Jesus becoming dazzling white. Just yesterday when I was sitting down to start writing this sermon, um, with all the storms passing through, uh, this bolt of lightning uh, hit just outside of my uh, the window where I was writing, and, and about 25 yards out. I mean, it was very, very close. And the sound was deafening, but the light, the brilliance of that light was blinding, was dazzling. I saw spots, you know, for several minutes, kind of like you do when you look at a bright light real quickly, and I could feel the electricity in the air for a few seconds. And it made me wonder if, some, if this was somewhat uh, similar to what the disciples saw. One of the things that is remarkable about this vision of Jesus in glory is that he is not alone. Moses and Elijah, someone representing the law and the other the prophets, as well as two people from their history that they would have known, were all and who also had mountaintop experiences of, with God, are there alongside with Jesus. No one knows where Moses is buried. And Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind with chariots of fire. That's another strange connection that they have. But each beheld and experienced a divine presence, very similar to what is occurring now. And for Peter, James, and John, seeing these two prophets of old, people mighty in word and deed, might have given them the understanding that Jesus is the valid Messiah. Jesus is he who is coming to restore all of Israel. Just before this episode, Luke records that Jesus asked the disciples who people were saying he was. And Peter answers that Jesus was the Messiah. Here, Peter and the sons of Zebedee Find out firsthand who the Messiah is. But one thing we must also remember is Jesus is transfigured in his human form. Jesus, being both fully God and fully man, does not lose his humanity, but instead has his human body changed to radiate the glory of God. Luke uses a curious word that Matthew and Mark do not use when detailing the conversation that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah. Luke says that they are speaking about Jesus' departure. One thing that is lost in our translation from the Greek 
is the word we use for departure in English, is actually the word exodus in the Greek. They are speaking of Jesus' exodus, which should bring to our mind two rather poignant facts. The first is that Moses, who was God's instrument in delivering the children of Israel out of bondage, was the one who led the exodus, was God's spokesman to Pharaoh, who more than anyone else is the main character of the exodus event and leads the Israelites to the promised land. And when the exodus, and this is the second point, but especially the Passover during this exodus event, it was the redemption event in the life of the Jews. Jesus is now going to accomplish a second exodus. Jesus is going to appear before another head of state, Pilate rather than Pharaoh, and through his own death and resurrection will lead the new Israel out of the bondage of sin and death into a new life, a new promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. And just as the Passover was part of the redemptive act for the children of Israel, Christ Jesus is our Passover, sacrificed for us. Jesus is beginning his move towards his redemptive act for the whole world. The problem with mountaintop experiences, though, is that we cannot stay there. We can't live and exist in this state of perpetual, uh, perpetual uh, ecstasy and vision. If we did, then that state would have no significance, no true meaning. It is because these moments in this temporal life, these encounters with God of being intimately close to his glory in a real and tangible way, it is because those moments are unordinary and not common occurrences that make them so profound. And the profundity of the moment is what gives us the courage and the strength to carry on the work of Jesus in the world. Jesus himself did not remain on the mountain. Instead, if we were to read the next few verses after our gospel lesson, we would see Jesus moving back into the crowd, healing people, exercising a demon the disciples could not. And after this event, Jesus begins to set his face towards Jerusalem and to the long journey to our exodus, our redemption and the last three of the milestones that we talked about earlier. Jesus was transfigured and changed. But what about us? Earlier I mentioned prayer. And by extension we can also mention worship, devotion, the reading and studying of Scripture. All these acts, all these conscious efforts to become more fully Christian, more fully attuned to God, 
more fully in relationship with our Creator, change us. We may not dazzle with the brilliance of the sun. We may not even get it right all the time. But we become transfigured, changing slowly into someone who is more Christ-like, more holy. And sometimes people do see and recognize that change in us. We come to the liturgy. We hear the voice of God saying, This is my Son, my Chosen. Listen to Him. We receive the Supper of the Lamb. We pray for our needs and those of others. And we are changed. But that changing means we must go out into the world and continue the work of Jesus. Jesus had work to do. Our salvation and redemption was not accomplished on this mountain of transfiguration, but on the hill of Calvary. But this mountaintop experience, Jesus, experience prepared Jesus for his work. And so too with us. We come here, or we go on pilgrimage, or we spend a week-long retreat to prepare ourselves for our labor. We come here to be changed, and we go out transfigured by what we have experienced to be the hands and the feet and the ears and the eyes of Christ. And like Jesus, we come off the mountain and heal, teach, restore the fallen, strive for justice, and pray for God's kingdom come. The collect for the last Sunday after the Epiphany, what used to be known as the Sunday next before Lent. O God, who before the passion of thy only begotten Son didst reveal his glory upon the holy mount, Grant unto us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed in his likeness from glory to glory through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.